Lovely. Hello. Hello. Um, good morning again. My name is Rosie. Um, and um, I'd just like to start actually this morning by um, reflecting back on some of the things JP shared at the beginning of um, the service about um, just feeling a fresh wave of the presence of God amongst us this week um, at our um, worship night on Monday. And we just had the joy of seeing people like, oh, I've been healed. It's, like, it's actually happened. <laughs> um, prayed with one girl who tentatively approached. She said, um, am I allowed to ask for healing for this? It doesn't seem very significant. It doesn't seem very big. I was like, of course you are. Of course you are. Jesus cares about that. And just seeing the joy on her face when um, she was healed and she was like, it's actually happened. Um, was such a joy. And hearing the stories about the 12 o'clock service and just the presence of God coming amongst um, us then. And um, I was just thinking, when I was younger, when I um, used to go to like youth festivals like New Day and things like that, and people talk about the presence of God, I can remember being like, oh, I wonder if he's going to show up today. Like, I wonder if God's going to come. Um, and I think we can feel a little bit like that when we come to church, can't we? Like, oh, I wonder if he will turn up. But I found it so helpful to remember, oh, he's here. He's always here. He's always speaking. He's always at work. Sometimes it's kind of mysterious, isn't it, how it... Um, he comes in these sort of waves, but um, we can know that he longs to speak, that he is here amongst us today. Um, and actually, as I speak this morning, I'm really excited for what God might want to say and do amongst us, the way that he might want to speak and set us free. And then, um, yeah, as Gus said, continuing um, in this series, God's plan for our well-being. I'm looking at relational well-being um, today, and I'm excited that... Um, uh, as we look at this topic together, yeah, God has things to say to us and speak to us by his spirit. Um, so I'd encourage you to be expectant um, about that. Um, we're going to start um, looking this morning at the first ever relationship in the Bible. The first ever relationship in history, actually. The relationship between Adam and Eve. You might have heard of them. Um, in Gen Genesis 2.25, when we first meet Adam and Eve, we're told... They were both naked and they were not ashamed. Between Adam and Eve, there were no painful secrets. There were no insecurities. There was no body consciousness, no envy, no tension, no comparison or mistrust, no regret, no misunderstandings, no unforgiveness. There was no abuse. Adam and Eve were totally at home. They were totally at home with one another and safe with each other and with God. Don't we long in the like, depths of our beings for relationships that look like that? Or perhaps even like one relationship that looked like that? And we long for this because it's what we were made for. Right relationship with God and right relationship with one another. This term we've been looking at, God's plan for our well-being. And that word well-being, that's what in the Bible, this is what it means. Shalom. Everything in its right place. No tension, no brokenness, no gaps. Shalom can be translated peace, but this is so much more than an absence of conflict or an absence of tension. You know, we can think of it as sort of passive neutral state where there's no, there's no war. But actually, shalom is so much more than that. It is the presence of wholeness 
and the presence of completeness and rightness. And that comes when God is on the throne of our lives. But Adam and Eve's state of shalom didn't last very long. When sin entered into humanity through Adam and Eve, sin brought with it shame. And shame is the fruit of sin. Where sin is, there you'll find shame. And shame does two things which have a devastating effect on our relational well-being. The first thing is that shame makes us hide. And the second thing is that shame makes us people who are turned in on ourselves. And this combination of hiding and self-preservation is really a recipe for disaster in our relational lives. So let's look at this first effect, the hiding. So remember, we read that Adam and Eve are naked and they're not ashamed. They have nothing to hide. They're not afraid to be seen because there's nothing that needs covering. They have nothing to prove, nothing to defend, nothing to justify. But everything changes the moment that they eat that fruit. (laughs) Shame comes flooding like a wave of nausea into their humanity. And their nakedness and their vulnerability, which used to bring freedom, now brings overwhelming fear. And instead of safety, it brings danger. Why is their vulnerability now dangerous? Well, because, firstly, they now stand before a holy God without a defence in the world, like a dandelion in a hurricane. And with one another, in front of one another, they are now vulnerable to being sinned against in a way that they weren't before. There is now a possibility of being rejected by the other, being hurt and misunderstood. And that means that they look for a way to protect themselves from that happening pronto. Um, And this is how they attempt to do that. We read in Genesis 3-7, Then the eyes of both were opened, but not in a good way, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Brené Brown, who is a researcher in shame, talks about shame this way. Where guilt says, I've done something bad that needs covering. Shame says, I am something bad that needs covering. So Adam and Eve didn't just hide what they'd done. They didn't just hide their guilt. They hid themselves. They hid from one another in an attempt to protect themselves from the possibility and the reality of rejection. By covering themselves with these fig leaves, probably not that well, I imagine, but they were saying, when you interact with me now, you won't see me as I am. You'll see this covering, this mask. Because I'm afraid of what you would see if you saw me as I am in my sin. I am now in danger of being sinned against by you. So I'm going to do what I can to stop that happening. I do have some genuine questions about what did they use for sewing materials... And genuinely, how robust can these clothes have been? Like, I googled fig leaves. There's like, it's not up to the task, I would say. However good Adam and Eve's haberdashery stores were, this is really a desperate picture of the insufficiency of our own attempts to cover things up. 
But don't we do the same? Don't we sew together social fig leaves to hide from others what we can't bear for them to see? Sin that we don't expose for fear that we would have be seen as unacceptable. Sin that has been done to us, which makes us feel dishonoured. Thoughts that we wish we did not keep having. And weaknesses we fear would disqualify us from the social or the leadership positions that we're in. We've all walked into this room this morning with some fig leaf clothing on. But for us to grow in our relational well-being as a community, and this is as a community, like it's not God's plan for your well-being as a series, it's God's plan for our well-being because we need one another in this. Your well-being in this area and in all the others affects the well-being of those around you. For us to grow in this, we need to let Jesus give us something better. But that is actually getting ahead of myself, so we'll look at what happens next. As well as hiding from each other, Adam and Eve try to hide also from God. And if we thought the fig leaves weren't really up to scratch, uh, well, this is an even less effective plan because they try to hide from the living God behind a tree. (laughs) In my mind, this is definitely like um, a naughty toddler who knows they've done something wrong, hiding from a parent just like in plain sight next to a tree. with their like, face, uh, eye, um, hands, there we go, over their face, because they think it means they can't be seen. But again, as funny as that is, like the fig leaves, isn't this a bit familiar? Can't we see so much of our relationship with God and our relationship with others in this picture of hiding behind a tree? To paraphrase John Bloom talking about shame, we hide maybe not behind trees, but in our homes or away from our homes. In our rooms and in our offices, we hide in housework, in the garden, in the shed. We hide behind computers and phones and newspapers. We hide behind headphones and Netflix and TikTok. We hide behind fashion facades, education facades, career facades, social media facades, leadership facades. We hide in busyness and in procrastination. We hide in outright lies or in diversionary conversation. We hide behind sarcasm and humour. We hide behind bravado and timidity. We hide in extroversion and introversion. But God is very kind. He comes walking in the cool of the day to find Adam and Eve. This is really a heartbreaking picture of the harmony that there should have been. Because Adam and Eve should have been walking that evening with God, at peace with him and with one another. But no, they're hiding behind a tree. So as they're cowering, they're hiding, dressed in their, I imagine now, crumbling foliage. God could have, of course, like that parent, said, Adam, I can see you. Come out. But instead, God asks them a question. He says, where are you? He knows where they are. But he's kind. And if you feel today like you are hiding from God, maybe there are things that you don't feel you've been able to speak to him about, or if you're being really honest, you're just running away. 
He wants you to know this morning that he's not shouting, come on, I can see you, out you get. He is gently asking, where are you? He does know where you are, but he made you to be known, not to be found out. We see the same kindness a few chapters later in Genesis when a woman called Hagar, likely full of shame and fear, is running away in a desert where she's hiding. God comes to her and in the same way he says, where have you come from and where are you going? The God who determines all of her steps, coming down to have a conversation with her. I believe that God wants to come and have this kind of conversation with many of us today. And there will be space to be prayed for later. And you don't have to do anything now, but maybe if that is you, I'd just like to uh, pray for you. Father, I pray that you would draw close to us now by your spirit. And I pray that we would know your comfort and your kindness. And in all the ways that we are running from you and running away from ourselves and those around us, Lord, I pray that we would know the kindness of you having a conversation with us, of drawing us into relationship, Lord. And we thank you so much that you are so kind. So we'll uh, carry on our story. God asks Adam where he is. And Adam, probably trembling with fear, comes out from behind the tree, emerges. And he tells God, this is Genesis 3.10, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And then God replies, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? I don't believe here that God is trying to catch Adam out. I think that he's actually giving Adam an opportunity to be honest. Because again, God knows, right? He knows he ate the fruit. But instead of being honest, we see the sort of behavior, the sort of self-preservation that just sort of fires out of a heart that is beset with shame. He says, this is honestly, this is outrageous, I think. When I was writing this, I was like, how dare he? He was like, the woman you gave me to be with, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. But this is what shame does. Adam was made to love. He was made to love Eve, which by its very definition means to look outwards, to give. But now Adam, in his shame, is desperately trying to look out for himself, to protect himself. So he's willing to throw Eve under the bus or an Eden equivalent, a rhino, perhaps. if it might mean that he can wriggle his way out of this tight spot. Adam is no longer looking outwards because he really actually no longer can. Sin and shame have turned him in on himself. He's now driven to act in his own interests at the expense of others. If I were being really honest, I would say that I do this sort of self-preservation shame response every day. If I'm criticised, I look for a way that it can't possibly be my fault. If others around me seem to be doing well at things that I would quite like to be doing well at, 
I can try and think of ways to discredit them in my mind. And when I remember painful memories that bring that rush of shame over me, I can hide in distraction rather than talking to the people who can point me to Jesus. But instead, I push them away. And this causes me pain because all of these things hinder my relationships with others. And I was made for relationships with others, intimate, safe relationships like Adam and Eve had in Eden. See, shame and hiding and pride, they don't make us any less wired, built for relationships. What they do is introduce all kind of pain into our relationships. And to put it simply, shame makes relationships messy. And we can't fix it on our own. When we think of how we, like Adam and Eve, lived in fear of rejection from one another and fear of judgment from a holy God, cowering behind trees dressed only in fig leaves that we'd sewn together ourselves, we know that we needed a better hiding place and better clothing. We needed saving from our shame. In another gift of kindness to Adam and Eve, we see that the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. He took away their self-help efforts to make clothes for themselves and he gave them something better that would last longer. This was the first sacrifice in the Bible and it pointed to a better one that was to come. Jesus came, clothed in humility and weakness. He was stripped naked before a scathing crowd, and in him, on the cross, God gave us a better sacrifice than that animal killed to cover Adam and Eve. Because here Jesus would give himself as a perfect sacrifice to provide for us a complete covering for shame. Jesus walked with open eyes to that tree so that like Adam, we could come out from hiding behind our trees. Now, instead of fig leaves that we make for ourselves or the animal skins which weren't a permanent solution, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, dressed in royal robes of pure white, He was crowned with thorns so that we could be crowned with honour instead of reproach. He was naked so that we could be clothed. He bore our shame on that cross. And now we come out of hiding. For this is our promise through the gospel. This is Isaiah 61. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land and everlasting joy will be yours. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. There is so much 
that we could talk about today in the area of relational well-being. I could talk about how we could be better friends and siblings and colleagues and neighbours. could talk about the importance of having wise voices in our lives who are different ages and stages to us. I could talk about individualism, social media, gossip, singleness, sex and marriage. But when we try and work out and we look at what relational well-being, true shalom, looks like in these areas, it's only when we know that we are covered by the righteousness of Christ that we can dare to step out of hiding and into the kind of vulnerability that brings real relational health with one another, knowing that it's him who covers us. When we are in Christ, we don't have to protect ourselves from rejection anymore because we are accepted in him. This is where our relational well-being begins. And actually, it's the heart of relational well-being, learning to let down our guards and remove our masks, trusting that we are safe in him, that we are covered. And I know this is easier said than done. When we come to Jesus, being covered in his righteousness happens like that instantly. Go from darkness to light, to from hiding to being found, from being naked to being clothed. But learning to live as people who are free from hiding and free from that self-preservation, that's a daily journey, a lifetime journey. And I ask us, how are we doing in this? If there are things that we are afraid of sharing with one another, maybe things that we've actually never told another person. And ask us how we're doing with this on a Sunday and in our home groups and in our families. The enemy wants nothing more than to keep us hiding behind those trees with our fig leaves. And he will tell us over and over again, he loves this one, we can't possibly say that thing. You cannot confess that sin because it's not safe. You will be rejected or you will be a burden. How often do you hear that? I don't want to be a burden. (laughs) When that happens, when those thoughts come, remember how it feels when someone bravely shares something vulnerable with you. How do we feel? Like we've been given a gift. Because we have. Brené Brown again on this, in one of her TED Talks, asks the question to her audience, how many of you, when you think about doing something vulnerable, or saying something vulnerable, think of it as weakness? When you think of it in yourself, how often do you think vulnerability and weakness are the same thing? And the majority of the room put their hands up. Then, she asked, how many of you, when you see vulnerability, think that it's pure courage? And then, like, every hand went up. This is the scheme of the enemy. (laughs) She says that after 12 years of doing research into vulnerability, that it's one of our most accurate measurements of courage. If you are taking small steps to grow in your relational well-being by being vulnerable with the people around you, keep going. 
And I just want to add, like, men, this is for you too. <laughs> how vulnerable you are or how easy it is to express emotion, it's not just personality. There are some who find it easier than others, but it's something that we can all grow in because it's something the Holy Spirit is at work in us as a community to bring about. Because God longs that we are a community who proclaim his victory over shame every time we take a step of relational courage. I am so encouraged that to grow in relational well-being, I don't have to grow out of weakness. I just have to grow in sharing it. As JP shared the other week, God's power is made perfect in our weakness, not despite our weakness, or once our weakness has been dealt with. It's actually through the very messiest things themselves. God's power is not displayed in a church that looks like it has it all together, but is actually held together by fig leaves. God's power is displayed in his sufficiency to cover sin and shame, creating a new humanity who are coming out of hiding. I'm going to invite the band up now. We're going to respond um, to some of these things. I realise that um, there's a lot of emotions and um, thoughts that can be bussing around our head when we talk about these kind of things. We want to create a safe space for God to speak and God to move and for God to have some of those conversations with us. I think for some of us, it's just that conversation. The, where are you? Where are you going? So as uh, Chris comes to play, why don't we just ask God come and speak. Let's hear his voice of kindness to us and then um, we'll lead through what we're going to do next. <laughs>